Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Ben Kissel, as always, with Marcus Parks. Hey, Ben. Uh, we got a great guest today, Marcus. Yeah, we do. Uh, he is the creator and I believe the executive producer of the great Showtime docu-series called The Circus, uh, which if you haven't seen it, you got to check it out. It's following the campaigns in real time. And uh, holy hell, Mark McKinnon is with us. Uh, you guys accurately named this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had no idea. You know, I pitched this show for over a decade, and it was just our dumb luck that we happened to, you know, get a green light at this cycle because it couldn't be more perfect. Oh, it's phenomenal. So you were just with Hillary Clinton over uh, last week, so obviously you were following her in Arizona, right? I followed her in Arizona. I was with her in Washington State. I was also with her in California. Her campaign has been the toughest to crack the bubble which is not surprising. She's, you know, former senator, secretary of state, right. former first lady, and it's kind of battleship Clinton. But we, we had a lot of, it turned out to be a phenomenal week to be with her because of the, all the, the Brussels stuff happened. And then we spent a day in her headquarters Friday, and then we had dinner with her, you know, with her campaign chairman and, and campaign manager Friday night. So it was a, we got a great look inside the campaign and and got some great sort of TikTok on what happened this week with the bombing and their reaction well, to it. Yeah, I mean, obviously Hillary definitely had a great week when it came to um, utilizing the uh, the tragedy in Brussels. I think that she came out on top. Trump sounds like a lunatic. Yeah. Uh, Cruz sounds slightly crazier, and Hillary actually sounds um, like a responsible leader uh, when it comes to foreign policy. I have a question about Arizona. So in 2012, there were 200 uh, polling stations. And now in 2016, in this cycle, they cut that down to 60. And a lot of people think that was uh, on purpose by the Clinton campaign to disenfranchise Bernie Sanders voters. What do you think about that? Do you think there's some truth uh, to, I mean, uh, it was mostly Hispanic neighborhoods as well. Some just did not have polling stations. Do you think there's any truth to the idea that the Clinton campaign was trying to disenfranchise voters in uh, Arizona? Well, color me skeptical, and here's why. You know, I've, I've heard those claims. You know, Republicans are often accused of, you know, trying to disenfranchise voters. Uh, and I'm not saying that, it, that there isn't bad intent from time to time, uh, trying to just sort of set up situations so, you know, it's optimal for your voters. But somebody went and did a, a fairly rigorous examination of how often there's, you know, voter fraud, and it's, and it's like literally never. Right. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I'd be surprised if that were really the case. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, although I'm, I'm for, you know, I wish they'd open up voting for a month. I wish you could mail it in, call right. it in. You know, it should be as easy as possible for everybody all the time. I mean, it's ridiculous. We can vote for an American Idol with a text. Why can't we just do it for a presidency? Exactly right. Why not? Exactly right. But, you know, we, I, went, I did this experiment with something called Americans Elect a, a few years ago. But when we got into the whole issue of ballot security and people voting, man, people go kind of crazy about this stuff. Well, I mean, I can't imagine it could be any worse than what we have right now. I believe it was. Oh, I agree. I agree yeah. completely. In, in Nevada, for example, they're polling. They were getting the results in by people filling out paper ballots, taking a picture of those paper ballots with a cell phone, and then emailing that picture of the paper ballot to a headquarters where God knows who was looking at it. <laughs> yeah, and this wasn't like, you know, the 1500s in Italy, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, so you have uh, a lot of experience working with strong political women. 
uh, specifically Ann Richards of Texas, uh, Marcus Parks' home state. Yeah, I'm also a Texan, and I think yeah, I love Ann Richards. I'm just a gigantic. I always have been. We've uh, we've she been was Ann, one, of, one of the great characters of all time. Yeah, huh? she really was. Yeah, when I was growing up, it was like my da- my dad was into politics, and he always looked to Ann Richards like that's how you do it. Do you do you yeah. see any? Um, can you compare Hillary's leadership style or what you believe her leadership style would be uh, as president to someone like Ann Richards? Because the sad thing about this country is we don't exactly have a lot of um, examples of females in positions of power. Yeah, well, I think there's actually a lot of parallels because, um, you know, I, I, having been through that campaign with Ann Richards, I, I saw up close the, 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 the true fact that women in politics are just held to a higher standard than mm-hmm. you are. I mean, that's not anecdotal. It's provable. And uh, so Ann Richards had to face that. And, you know, you look around the world at women who have been national. There's Golda Meir, uh, Margaret Thatcher, others. You know, they all had to do like twice as much and do it twice as long in order to prove themselves to get elected to the same positions as men. So, yeah. you know, I, I just and, and, and I think so I think they have to do twice as much. They have to do it twice as well. And their skin has to be twice as thick, too. So. The, right. the real parallel that I see with Hillary Clinton and Ann Richards is that they were both tough, tough, tough. What's a story? Do you have a, a story that just explains why or just an example of how Ann Richards was so tough? Because she was a Democrat in Texas, female, obviously, governor. I mean, really, uh, no one thought that that would uh, happen, especially in what people believe the very conservative state of Texas to be. Well, I, I, I'll just give you an example of the sort of thing you had to do in Texas. I remember this is. Now, this is just a Democratic primary, and she's running against the former governor, Mark White, who I also worked for, and the attorney general, Jim Maddox, who, of course, went on to accuse her of using cocaine, which is a whole other story. Oh, my God. But, well, she got my vote. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but in this particular debate, they got into a three-way argument hmm. about, A, who had, who had put more people to death on death row and who would put more people to death on death row. Oh. So that's just kind of an example of the kind of environment Ann Richards had to run in. This and is a, those guys. and this is a Democratic primary in Texas. And yeah, not the over Republican who? primary. That was the Democratic primary. <laughs> oh my God! So what was the number one winner? Who put the most people to death? <laughs> well, well, in fact, uh, I remember Mark White did a commercial uh, where he's walking through a like he like blew up all the pictures of all the people he killed yeah. and hung them and then walked through this gallery of all the people he killed in a commercial. Holy hell, that's so, sociopath. I'd have to give that advantage to, to Mark White. <laughs> well that's <laughs> good for him. Um so let's see. So you're you were following Hillary this week. What has been some of the um what what have been what's your experience been so far with the Showtime show The Circus? Are you enjoying the process? Are you just as stressed out and as tired as these presidential candidates? Well, it's a crushing schedule, um, but I'm so happy and thrilled to be doing it. It's an idea that I've been, you know, I've, I've pitched for 10 years at, you know, that dozens of networks. And it was, you, you, you're kind of in the biz, so you know how this goes. But, right. it, you know, it lived and died a thousand deaths. And, you know, just so, so just to actually be able to do this and put it on the air is really exciting for me because. I've always thought that this world kind of behind the scenes of presidential campaigns is so interesting mm-hmm. and compelling and there's all this human drama. And so sure enough, we got to we got to do it. And the response has been fantastic. I mean, people, you know, not just political junkies, but even even more so people who are casually interested right. in politics find that this is a way that they can every Sunday night kind of you know, without having to watch meet the press or read The New York Times, mm-hmm. they can get up to speed with what's going on. And they kind of the way we do it 
they see these candidates with a, in a much more contextualized way so that they see how they interact with staff and with family, and they just get more of a sense of what kind of a humans they are, and they also right. get a sense of just, you know, just how humiliating this process is and how hard it is yeah. for them to, to, you know, it's, it is a batan death march that they have to go through in order to, to get elected. Well, I think it's interesting you use the word humiliated because isn't it? And yeah. isn't it worse than ever before? Obviously, we have Trump and Cruz going after one another's wives. It's absolutely insane. Oh, my God, yeah. It's more out of bounds than ever. And a lot of people consider politicians, people who want to be the pres- uh, seek the presidency, they think of them as uh, egomaniacal sociopaths. With the, but with the humbling experience of, bec- of running for president, what do you actually think the character traits that you see the most are in these people? Well, the, what I've really seen in, uh, in the people that I've had the opportunity to work for and that I've been around is that there, there really is a, a strong public service chromosome buried in there. You know, it's, mm-hmm. Because when you see what these people have to go through, and in fact, you know, I, after having seen what I've seen, I can't imagine why anybody runs for public office. You know, yeah. not, I mean, I mean, school board, much less president. Of the United <laughs> States. I mean, no, no my brother is, went through a school board election. It was awful work. And, yeah. uh, you know, and not well compensated. And it's just and, and particularly today, as you said, I mean, just to live in kind of the world that we live in, that's not only so dangerous, but just the media world that people live in today. My God, it's just. You know, there's no you, you, you can't maintain a semblance of any normal life at all. Right. I mean, we were talking a little bit. We did the Greg Gutfeld show together. We were discussing in the green room what happened with Ann Richards when Carl Rove began the uh, whisper campaign. Uh, you didn't have to. You could just shout it uh, about her sexual <laughs> orientation. And uh, obviously that derailed her. It was a different time. What are some of the nastiest things you've seen political operatives do on the campaign trail or maybe something that you've done yourself? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, well, let me let me just talk about this week, which is just an interesting development. Uh, so you have the whole Cruz Trump thing, not just about uh, you know the photos of Trump's wife right. from a you know quote super PAC. These super PACs are a whole other discussion. You know, it kind of you know puts arms distance for it, it. Basically, it gives license to do anything whatsoever because there's nobody takes responsibility for them. Right? The campaign just say, oh, that was a super PAC, and we have no legal connection to it so right. the super PACs you know it's worse than ever because super PACs have have no you know governing authority mm-hmm. uh and, and then we have uh now these accusations of uh you know i think a single source notion of ted cruz and all these affairs he supposedly has in the national Enquirer, which ha- which instantly went mainstream right uh and, and that just reminds me of bill clinton and what a different era that was when he ran because i remember you know, that whole thing that kind of blew him up initially with Jennifer Flowers, mm-hmm. the reason that he survived all that is because it never went mainstream back then. You know, it just right. stayed in the National Enquirer. And at that point, he just said, well, that's the National Enquirer. And nobody took it seriously, mm-hmm. even though I remember at the time actually reading the National Enquirer because I happened to love it. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, and it was like actual phone transcripts of Jennifer Flowers having phone sex with Bill Clinton. So it actually was pretty legitimate. But, but, but nobody took it yeah. legitimate. But these days... You know, it just you know, you put it on Twitter and it goes. There's no there's no boundaries. There's no ethics. There's no there's no rules anymore. Right. It's just it's all just throw it out there and let it go. Yeah, that, I'll give you an example of that. Yeah. If if we have a second, of so course, please. When we started doing the show, um, one of the things that happened, and and this is a little bit because you know we kind of came in from Showtime with these big cameras and microphones and big crews, and suddenly, and because largely because I've just been in the business for 30 years, and so is Mark. 
Halpern and John Hyland. You know, I've worked with those campaign managers and press secretaries, you know, years ago. So we were able to get pretty good access. And so people who've been on the bus and the plane, you know, some of those embeds and members of the press were still like, you know, who are you guys kind of walk in and, you know, suddenly just get an interview that I've been trying to get for months. Right. And so there was a little bit of that going on. And then suddenly this surfaced, there surfaced this rumor that we were like secretly hiding what they called hot mics. Mm. And what they meant by that was that we were like leaving microphones like behind on the bus, <laughs> yeah. having conversations with the candidates that we could secretly tape and then use. And so this, and then the, the, the wild thing about this is it was, it was a rumor that just would not die. Uh-huh. And, you know, and so even and what though we say I'm... to them, A, it's unethical. B, in the states that we were in, it was illegal. Mm-hmm. C, if we ever did that, that'd be the end of our careers and we'd never do another show. But it was just this crazy thing that happened. And it reminded me of the time when George Bush ran for president and he did a, uh, and I worked for him then, and he, we had a debate. And coming out of the debate, somebody took a photograph of him, and his jacket kind of bunched up, so it looked like there was a square on his back. Mm. And suddenly oh, yeah. the rumor started that we had a secret transmitter hidden in the back of his coat that we were transmitting to during the debate. So That's right. The end of the story that I want to say is just how the media has changed. So what happened on this is they, you know, we even though we off the record say no because we didn't want to go on the record because as soon as you go on the record, then it's a story. But they tweeted it out anyway just to say there's a rumor of this. Same ran a story, and of course we said absolutely you know, ludicrous, ridiculous, false. And then the very next day, a reporter from the same publication. And what was the publication? Said, what about this hot? I, I'm not going to say. I, oh, okay. I, I'm gonna, but, but the same publication came up to me and said, you know, what about this hot mic story? And I said, well, wait a minute. Aren't you from the same publication that ran this story yesterday? And she said, yeah, but people are talking about it. And I said, well, why don't you tell those people to read your story from yesterday? How about that? Right, right, right. And I was just. It's like, oh, my God. Well, the last thing you want to do uh, is become the news, right? Yeah, and, you know, that's the problem. It's like, you know, as, as people will just, you know, say anything. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, Ben, you're fucking your grandmother. What do you, what's your response to that? And if you respond to it, then, hey. you know, then it becomes a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandmother was a strong woman. <laughs> she's was, she was pretty hot. Oh, yeah, yeah. beautiful. She, yeah, she, she was. Uh, that, that's uh, that's great. So, uh, was it? What was the? Who was? Was there a specific campaign uh, that has been uh, extremely uh, open as far as uh, allowing you guys access? Because with the hot yeah. mic story, it's so bizarre that these people would be concerned about what they say in private, considering what uh, many of them are saying in public. You would almost think if they yeah. could get caught in private, they might have a human moment. Yeah, well, yeah, and and uh, uh, so the answer to your question is Bernie Sanders. The Sanders okay. campaign has been great. The access has been terrific. Jane Sanders, his wife, has become like the rock star of the series. Yeah, yeah, you know, she's just this terrific character who is you know not like any you know is is not the normal vision of a political wife at all. She's more like you know your favorite you know sister or aunt or mm-hmm. you know neighbor next door, just totally down to earth and kind of see. What's fun is to see the the enormity of the campaign kind of through her eyes as she's experiencing what they've been going through. So with and Ber- just these great human moments between her and Bernie, her yeah. kind of you know giving him a little peck on the cheek as he goes out on this you know from backstage as he goes out to give a speech, that kind of thing. Just, I mean, just nice human moments. Yeah, they you know the show does um, really allow you to see those sorts of human moments that are oftentimes uh, you know so difficult to uh, to to witness. Um, with Bernie Sanders, we just had the primary yesterday. He won Hawaii. He won Alaska. He's won, I think, 10 of the past 12 uh, states. 
Do you feel like he is not getting a fair shake when it comes to the media? Your program does a great job of of showing the uh, rabid fandom that he has had all over the country, but it doesn't seem like uh, media, you know, Donald Trump has covered 23 times more than any other presidential candidate. Why isn't the media giving Bernie any attention? Uh, I think there's just a narrative that gets created that it's kind of a fait accompli that Clinton's going to win, and therefore, you know, I don't think he ever got his due. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, and unfortunately, even those last series of elections, you know, all those states were in such bad time zones that he's that he didn't even really get the story of those wins mm-hmm. because everybody kind of missed that cycle. What I don't yeah. get about uh, Bernie Sanders is that he is like, from a pure journalistic point of view. Bernie Sanders is a fantastic story. As far oh, as he's, a, he's, a, he's, fan, he's, he's yeah. a really great story. Yeah. And you that's know, why I don't get why people aren't covering it. Because, but yeah, Bernie's- cause it's, it's, it's so surprising. And it's so, and he's kind of an anti, you know, an anti-hero character. He's just, he's not what you'd expect in a, in a politician. He's not polished. He's, you know, he's kind of gruff. He's kind of a, a neighbor next door that says, get off my lawn. Right. But you know, he's just, he is who he is. And it's just kind of wonderful. And he, there's just no pretense about him. And people are so used to, pretense and artifice so to right. see somebody that, that's that kind of just just authentic and then by the way that's what that's what people love more than anything these days because they just think that everything's so packaged right that if you can communicate any ounce of authenticity then you see and you know, see what happens and and what's happened is you know the rocket ship sanders yeah, I mean, Bernie, of if you go back and watch, he had those great shows on public access when he was the mayor of Burlington. It's Have you seen those, Mark? Yeah. yeah oh, I mean, yeah. they're just phenomenal, and you get to see the beginnings of him working on his rhetoric when it comes to the, the 1% of the 1%, oh, 90%, you know, and he really starts <laughs> to hone that message. Why do you think in this election cycle it's resonating with people? Is it because Hillary Clinton is an innately flawed candidate, or are we just ready to uh, – uh, you know, is the populace just so upset with the shrinking middle class that uh, they're they're willing to give a democratic socialist a chance? Well, I think uh, if you look at this election and you realize that the two of the leading candidates are a, a real estate billionaire who's never run for office and a Jewish socialist from Vermont, right? That says that says volumes about this election. And what it says, I mean, the bottom line on it is that that people voters are just sick and tired of everything they've seen before. And they just want something completely different. And Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were something completely different. They're yeah. just, you know, they are not typical of the status quo in their own ways. They're, they're both, of course, completely different. Uh, but they are something that is refreshing and different that voters, you know, they just want to try something different. So let's say it is Trump. And I want to discuss um, the establishment and if you think it's actually going to be forever altered after this election cycle or if things are going to go back to status quo. But really quickly, do you see Bernie Sanders supporters right now who I do not believe will vote for Hillary Clinton? I think they see uh, Hillary as a, as an enemy, as a uh, as a nemesis to democracy, and they have been thoroughly appalled at her tactics in these primary states like Nevada faking the nurses union, uh, nursing uh, union in Iowa, shrinking the size of the caucus uh, auditorium to disenfranchise Bernie supporters. Do you see any Bernie supporters potentially going over and voting for someone like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz? Or, you know, the, 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 the X factor would be a independent candidate. I mean, this is kind of the perfect setup for that. I'm sorry, uh, can you repeat the system, that? What, system's rigged against that sort of thing. What, what you can imagine the, if somebody did that, that, you could get a lot of Sanders voters voting for that, that candidate. Yeah, what would be the X factor? I'm sorry, your phone cut out. 
uh, an independent or third-party candidacy. Right. But, okay, so let's say we do have an independent candidate that runs. Hell, it might be Donald Trump himself if he doesn't get to 1237 and the, and the, uh, and the GOP strips him of the nomination. Do you think that benefits um, the Republicans or the Democrats? Will Hillary get in with 43% of the vote like Bill? Well, uh, the most likely person that would advantage is Hillary Clinton because the irony here is, as you recall, about a, maybe not a year ago, but nine months ago or so, when Trump was first starting to take off, there was all this activity and pressure from the Republican Party to make Donald Trump pledge that he would not run as a third-party candidate yes. and only run as a Republican. The irony is now, flash forward, mm-hmm. he's the Republican, you know, likely to be the Republican nominee, and now the Republican Party itself is thinking about running someone as a third-party or independent candidacy to kind of rebrand and rebuild the Republican Party yeah. against Trump. So, with, so that's the most likely scenario, and if that happens, of course, that helps Hillary Clinton. Yeah, naturally. With what's happening with the uh, with the Republican Party, Donald Trump, he's a branding man. That's all he does is license, right? He, we know he doesn't do anything. He just puts his name on things, and uh, he's a great uh, a great. He's got a great Dwayne Reed in his uh, Trump Tower in Wall Street. Some of the best sushi in town. Ugh. I can't get enough of Dwayne <laughs> Reed sushi, but we're not going there. Jesus, do man. you think that Donald Trump? has forever sh- uh how long is the republican party how long is it going to take for them to recover from uh donald trump well i i've been saying for uh, quite a long time before and before trump ever came on the scene uh in this election cycle that the republican party was adrift and that there were you know all these different strains about you know where the future of the republican party might be where it's headed but no consensus no sort of core vision for the future and and i've said that I think that the Republicans might have to burn the house down to rebuild it again. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, you know, that's what may happen. So who do you think wins? Is it the libertarian vein of the Republican Party? Is it social conservatism that Ted Cruz is trying to, uh, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, trying, trying to bring back uh, to, uh, to the White House? I mean, what Republican Party do you think actually uh, stands the test of time? Uh, well, I, I don't have a clue, and I've, I've been very bad at making predictions in politics. Uh, but... You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a fairly progressive Republican, and, and you know, I, I believe the Republicans won was because we expanded the tent, and we talked about, uh, you know, a new kind of Republicans and compassionate conservatism. Right. Uh, and we, you know, we brought, you know, we appeal, we made appeals to Hispanics. I mean, the reason I initially supported George W. Bush was because of his stance on immigration and education reform. Yeah. You know, something that's anathema now to the party, and I think that just shrinks the party. So. I think it's got to be a vision that expands dramatically well, if I'm, who we're trying to appeal to. If I'm not mistaken, W, he won 43% of the Hispanic vote. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, so he won 43% of the Hispanic vote. Now, obviously, Trump, he's not polling quite as high. <laughs> it turns out when you threaten to deport your, their, their grandmothers, people get upset. Uh, do you think the Republicans will be able to get those voters back in 2020? Or is this... Well, is- uh, we'll have, uh, Republicans will have to do something dramatic because, uh, as you said, we... Uh, George W. Bush won the, won the presidency by putting together a coalition that included 43% of Hispanics. Mitt right. Romney only got 27%. Right. So uh, you can see the problem. And, and, you know, given where Trump is now with Hispanics, you know, we're clawing our way to the bottom. So uh, something dramatic is going to have to happen. And that's, that's why I think that, you know, initially the, you know, Democratic friends of mine, and I, and I certainly saw somebody like, 
Marco Rubio as a as an attractive general election candidate because right. obviously he's Hispanic and has that appeal to Hispanic voters, and he's from Florida, which Republicans have to win in order to get the presidency back as well. Mm-hmm. So what? Yeah, I mean, let's go into that a little bit. We've seen this race for the Republicans started off with seventeen people. I'm going to say sixteen and a half because Jim Jim Gilmore no. uh, he doesn't really count. <laughs> And obviously, the, you know, the Dems started with three, but O'Malley, two and a half. They also started with two and a half. Uh, and now we've seen uh, with the Republicans, we're down to basically two and a half, uh, Kasich being the other half. Um, what, what's been some of the more interesting implosions that you've seen on the campaign trail so far? I mean, obviously, Jeb having to bow out after this, this disgraceful uh, performance in South Carolina. What's been some what reasons do you see behind these candidates failing? Well, the, the primary reason is just that uh, we are in an electorate that that is nothing historically like what we've seen before. And, you know, most politicians and candidates run and look at what's worked before and kind of that's how they run their game plan. And, you know, Jeb Bush was just a, a, a candidate who was out of time. You know, he, mm. he, it was painful to watch him run because he was like a 20th century candidate running in the 21st century, even though. You know, when you went out and actually saw him and listened to him, he had a lot of great ideas and he sounded like, uh, you know, a, a very thoughtful guy and a guy who, you know, probably could be president, should be yeah. president, but, you know, didn't have the skill set and the mechanics to run in 20, 2012. And, and this guy, this real estate billionaire who, you know, tweets his way onto the scene and, right. and dials it in, it just completely dominated the scene. What was one of the differences between uh, W. Bush's uh, uh, just just style as a politician compared to Jeb? Because they spent a hundred million dollars on the uh, on the super PAC. He paid on average five thousand bucks per vote. That's how poorly he did. What was what was the major flaw? Was do you think he was just rusty from not being in political life for so long? Well, he, he's just uh, I'm sure that's part of it. He hadn't run for a while, but you know it's. The difference between he and I mean W is just a, a has great retail skills. Always, mm-hmm. you know, when we ran against uh, Al Gore and against John Kerry, we do this, we do our research, and it looks so daunting because people would say, "I agree with John Kerry on nine out of ten issues. I agree with Al Gore on nine out of ten issues." You know, um, you know, I have these concerns, this concerns about George W. You go through all these things, and it looked like a slam dunk for Gore and for Kerry, and then at the end of that, you'd say. Well, who would you want to go have a beer with? Oh, W by far. Right. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, those guys loved people. They loved campaigning. And, right. uh, you know, you know, there was just a, you could, you could, you could sense it, you could feel it. And, you know, the, and then there are candidates who, you know, as, as good an office holders as they may be, just are not good at the art of campaigning in the 21st century. Is that really, is that really all it is? Is just a popularity contest now? Well, it's a, no, it's not more than it's, 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 but voters don't vote on single issues. They look at a whole constellation right. of attributes that includes, you know, do they trust this person? Do they share their values? Do they perceive them as strong? But, you know, that's why the circus is so interesting because we get to mm-hmm. see all of that behind the scenes. You know, it's not just, you know, their, their, you know, their policy position on, you know, moving the, uh, the embassy in Israel. It's, you know, it's, uh, how do they react under pressure like this right. when the bombing happened? And um, we saw, and you'll see this Sunday, how dramatically different Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump reacted to these events. Yeah, again, I think Hillary absolutely looked uh, presidential 
uh, during during uh, her comments on that on the tragedy. Let's go back to a W because I mean, 2000 was such a fascinating election. Of course, the Supreme Court had to weigh in on the decision. What did you think about the way that election went um, when it came to you know the Supreme Court, this supposed non political entity, which is one of the I mean, obviously a total farce. But what did you feel? Uh, what did you think when they are the reason that uh, the W became president? Oh, you know, uh, listen, I worked for him, so I was glad we won. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, in, in, uh, you know, and Al Gore made the mistake of not calling for a full statewide recount. He should have done that. That was his mistake. And he blew hmm. it. So. And of course, Gore had a what do you think about his uh, his campaign was flawed because he wanted to distance distance himself uh, from Clinton. Correct. He had about a 61 percent approval rating leaving office. Why do you think he made that decision? Uh, I think ego. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, listen, I mean, Al Gore was a terrible candidate. And, you know, uh, and, and like I said, people look at those constellation of attributes and, you know, whether it gets decided, you know, by a recount of the Supreme Court, you got to have you got to have the skill set to, you know, convince either the voters or a, a jury of the Supreme Court that you're worthy of being president of the United States. Yeah. And then, of course, in uh, in 2004, uh, John Kerry, another completely, he was a very, very flawed candidate. But he was, you know, this was a this was one of the dirtier elections of, uh, yeah. you know, of our lifetime, which uh, by today's standards, it was the PG. It was, <laughs> you know, there was a talking dog playing football. It was uh, it was as, uh, it was as Disney as it gets. But of course, John Kerry was swift. The, the, the term swift boated uh, came up a whole bunch. Um, what are some of the parallels between, are, or are there any parallels uh, between uh, 2016 and 2004 when it comes to just, you know, uh, opponents slandering one another uh, in the political arena? Well, what, you know, what everybody learned from that carry experience is you cannot let a charge go unanswered. Right. I mean, you have to knock it down no matter how outrageous it might be. So, uh, you know, I mean, so is that- you'll, you'll, see in this, you'll, you'll see in this episode, we talked to John Podesta, who's the chairman uh-huh. of the campaign. He worked for Clinton. He, Bill Clinton, he worked for Obama. I mean, he is, he's been around. And he, or I asked him that question. I said, what's changed? And he says, well, you know, he used to you know, be a four-day news cycle. Then it was a four-hour news cycle. Now we're in a, like a four-second news cycle. Right. So, so- you, you've got to have the ability to deal in the environment in which the game is played, right? So, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's like if you're playing college football today – you better be able to go to a spread offense, and if you can't, then you know I don't care how good your team is. You're not gonna you're not gonna win. You're not gonna compete. Do Same you, thing for candidates. Yeah. You know if you can't if you can't adapt to the environment, then you know that's that's what's required in a democracy. We don't appoint our politicians. We make you go out there and play the game. Put it on the field. Yeah, I love it. Um, and we'll let you go here in just a few minutes. But Mark, thank you so much for talking to us. It's amazing. Hey, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you guys. Obviously, uh, you know. Uh, 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 know your stuff. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed by uh, your knowledge about all that's, all that's going on here. Well, we'll get you to the airport bar in just a couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do want to ask, do you think it was a mistake for Bernie Sanders to go, enough with your damn emails, uh, let's not do anything negative, never run into a negative ad. Do you think that he should have started hitting Hillary harder earlier? No. No, I don't think it would have made any difference. In fact, nope. I, think he got a lot of, I think he got a lot of credit from a lot of people, including you know, persuadable people were kind of sitting on the fence to say, you know, yeah, that was, you know, that I, I think people appreciated that point of view. I think that's how a lot of them felt. And I think that just made him even more authentic, mm. you know, for him to like to say, you know what, the email thinks a bunch of crap. <laughs> you well, know, it was just very refreshing. 
any other politician, you know, would never have done that. But that's classic Bernie Sanders, and I think that that actually helped him. Yeah. What do you actually personally think about the email scandal? I mean, obviously, there's no way that this Justice Department will be indicting Hillary. There's no way Loretta Lynch is going to let that go through. Do you see it as uh, having any legs whatsoever, or do you think it's just politi- uh, politicized nonsense? Um it's this, this just obviously I don't know anything that anybody else knows. But my gut instinct is that whatever was done, you know, I, I can't imagine that there was anything done with intent. Mm-hmm. You know, any I mean, any sort of, you know, uh, bottom line, I, you know, there may have been a lack of security or, you know, violations of security, whatever there might yeah. have been. But I just can't imagine that there was ever any intent. Uh, and I think that's what people really care about. Mm hmm. Uh, and, and as you said, I mean, just given the nature of the political environment, I, I, it's just hard to imagine that this, you know, that this gets, you know, actually prosecuted yeah. during the election cycle. And, you know, I think people just I think that people have factored it in, you know, Republicans and Democrats, mm-hmm. those who kind of see conspiracy theories are going to see conspiracy theories and those who, you know, are more likely to about it, that's the way they're going to be. And I don't think that anything's going to happen that's going to change that dynamic significantly. I mean, I don't think Comey, uh, you know, and others who are in charge are going to let this yeah. become politicized. Of course, James Comey, the FBI director, who I just found out is six foot eight. Wow. I could be the FBI director. <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing. You guys are related, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, he's my dad. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's that's interesting. So you don't see that uh, scandal really going anywhere. Although you look at what David Petraeus did, which was much, much less, and uh, they certainly charged him with a lot, lot more, um, which was quite sad. I thought the uh, it was a tragic end to that man. To yeah, it really was. That was a, a very sad, unfortunate thing. But um, yeah, uh, you know, so I, you know, Republicans, I'm sure, will try and dial it up. And, mm-hmm. uh, but like I said, I, it, it seems to me like you know. I can't imagine there'll be any significant revelations about intent and or any significant, you know, actual legal proceedings that will occur before the election. And therefore, I think it's baked into the plan. Yeah. Um, Just uh, what? Okay. so there's a few more questions. Number one, what is uh, how sad are these candidates after they lose? How long does it take to recover from a devastating loss? I mean, literally. Uh, great, great question. Well, so uh, the it is a crushing, crushing, soul-crushing experience to lose campaigns. And, in fact, uh, I mentioned in the last episode because I was around kind of for the Marco Rubio uh, day after, and I went down. I had kind of drew the short straw, and I had to go down to his campaign and try and talk. But of course, nobody wanted to talk, and it was just this sad and pathetic situation with people, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, walking out of the campaign headquarters with their boxes to their cars. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, it got to the point where uh, losing was such a difficult experience. That lo- let me put it this way. Losing is worse, is, is a bigger downer than winning is an upper. So, I mean, uh. it got to the point in campaigns where I almost, I, I didn't quit because of it, but it was almost like, I, I don't want to do this anymore because losing is just such a, I mean, you commit everything to these people and mm-hmm. their lives. And uh, uh, it just, it, I mean, for even winning in some ways, it's like after we did a presidential, something happens to like, is just your kind of your biology. You, you like turn on your, your, your system into overdrive for two years and you're just like on maxed out at 24 seven. So even when you win, you sort of have this sort of biological thing that happens to you. Your system yeah. kind of goes to hell and you're even depressed when you win. So, yeah. but, you know, but losing <laughs> on top of that, and it's just, a, it's horrible. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a really 
tough experience. What were some you know, what, losing anything, obviously, but but a political campaign is just it's terrible. What was the worst political loss of uh, of your career? Oh, I never lost. I won everything. You've always won. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, some congressional races and, you yeah. know, uh, I had a friend of mine who was a governor who lost a reelection, who was one of the great characters of all time. Somebody once said, if you think you know anything about politics, go to Louisiana and get your PhD, which I did in 1987. I worked for a guy named Buddy Romer who beat the infamous Edwin Edwards, who had never lost an election in 19 tries in, in Louisiana. We beat him. Huh. And then we sent him to the penitentiary later. But but then a couple years later, he we what, lost the election because David David Duke ran. Oh my and Siphoned away all the votes <clears throat> for our guy, and uh, Edwin Edwards won. So that was a tough one. But they're all tough. I mean, you just you know for any I feel I feel a lot of empathy and sympathy for any candidate or their campaign and their staff, mm-hmm. particularly for the younger people because they never even see it coming. You know they right. they just they are such believers. They just think that they're. You know, they're going to do this, and they're going to go to the White House, and this is going to build their careers, and then it just, you know, all comes to a crashing end well, suddenly and overnight. You know, that's one of the interesting things that I was discussing with uh, some people um, who do, you know, television news and things like that. A lot of these supporters for Donald Trump or for Hillary, they're sort of hedging their bets, and their entire career careers will be made or end uh, alongside the political aspirations of these people. Do you think there's something flawed with the way the news media in general is covering somebody like Donald Trump? Do you think, I mean, is it, is it, is it, uh, do we need to go back to the FAIR doctrine? The Fairness, <laughs> the fairness Act? Yeah, yeah I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I, my, my, I think there'll be volumes written about this election and a lot of post analysis about how Trump dominated. But my view as just kind of a guy who's been through a lot of these evolutions of news and how things evolve and change is that, you know, there's two ways you can handle this. You can either whine about it right, uh, and get crushed by the wave or get out your surfboard and catch it, yeah. you know? And, and so I just say, buckle up. You know, just deal with the reality that's out there and, you know, understand that the, the environment is constantly shifting and adapt. Yeah. And what did you send the man to prison for? Was it what was his name again? <laughs> Emmett Emmy? Edwin Edwards. Edwin Edwards. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. What did what, no, what, he, Oh, my God. I, I, yeah. All kinds of. Oh, it, he, he was carrying around bags of cash that he was paying. Oh, people. I see. Yeah. They finally figured that out. But uh, and then he came out and ran for Congress again. <laughs> How do you do? Uh, I think they finally lost. <laughs> oh, thank God. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so just just uh, lastly, um, do you think this is going to be a wake-up call for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party? Do they understand that they need to get out a, uh, a much larger uh, message and they need to maybe adjust their policy ideas to uh, really reflect the society? Because it seems to me Congress is at about an 11% approval rating on average. It seems like government isn't reflecting the populace, and that seems to be where the problem lies, right? I think it's a seismic, seismic election uh, in in ways we can't even imagine yet. But yes, I think I think not just for the when we talked a lot about the Republicans kind of burning down the house and rebuilding it, but I think there's a big message to, to Democrats as well, and I think that's a big part of the Sanders message. Uh, I, I think that there will be enormous consequences. Of this election, no matter who wins. I mean, I think it is a it is a huge wake up call to the establishment, to mm-hmm. Washington, that uh, you know, the good thing about democracy is it's often messy, but you know, at the end of the day, 
voters get to say, you know what, time to wake up, folks. And we're, right. we're and the message of this election could not be louder and it could not be clearer. I agree. I agree. Just lastly, for the people who listen to the podcast who like Bernie, does he have a chance? <laughs> um, yes. You know, until until Hillary gets, you know, 1275 delegates at the convention. Absolutely. That's the other great thing about democracy is, you know, shit happens, man. And I've seen that happen a lot in politics and just stay on the field until the last bell rings. Yep, and I agree. And, you know, I was talking, I was trying to find some silver linings in this election cycle because, you know, people get so upset. One of the silver linings is that every state matters this year. Yeah. California is well, going to matter in June, yeah. and I think that's exciting. And, and, you know, we talked to Bernie Sanders in uh, the last episode or so about this very notion about, you know, people saying, well, you know, are, are you going to just go ahead and wave the flag? And he says, no. He says, I, you know, I'm going to run until the last delegate is, is allocated. We're, you know, we, he's raising money. He's winning states. He just won the last three states. Yep. And, you know, while he's doing all that, he's getting his message out. He's having a huge impact on the issues that are being debated and where Hillary Clinton stands. And so, you know, win, lose, or draw, uh, Bernie Sanders will have had a huge impact on this election mm-hmm. and the policies going forward. So whoever's yeah. president. And he's doing it all at the age of 74. I cannot believe we don't even I we don't give enough credit to these elderly people running for the presidency. You know, that really does. That, that's one of the things that baffles me about it, because that's what everyone always says, that these campaigns are such huge slogs. Right. And it's, you know, you're effectively dragging senior citizens around Seriously. the country. Like, I mean, the did, average life expectancy is 77. <laughs> like, how do they? Listen, I'm telling you, 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 I mean, if you went out on the campaign for for a week, You'd need a month to recover. Yeah. And, and these people do it for two years, and they're 70-something years old. It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. It's been such a privilege speaking with you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, it was fun kicking it with you on Gutfeld, and it's fun hitting you with today. Hell yeah, man. Well, have a great time in Denver. D- do everything I would do. We're headed up to Wisconsin. Oh, you are? we this week. Yeah, that's where I'm headed. My home state of Wisconsin. Any predictions oh, there? Oh, really? Oh, well, you'll love the next episode. The whole next episode is going to focus on Wisconsin. Oh, my God. Exactly. Mark, please. The theme is, the theme is on Wisconsin. You'll, that, you'll probably know what that, that is. That's a great theme. Wisconsin's had a rough couple of uh, months here with making a murderer. <laughs> uh, it made Wisconsin look so bad, the documentary, Making a Murderer. So please represent my home state fairly this well. A, or If it's at, just. I promise. Yeah. We'll redeem you. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Oh, you bet. Uh, All right. Kick it hard. Carry on regardless. Thank you so much, Mark. We'll talk to you later. See you guys. Bye. Bye. So that was the interview with Mark. Uh, It was amazing. Marcus, what did you think? I loved him. I loved him too. And uh, yeah, a lot of informative stuff there. Um, all right, everyone. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to the show. Marcus, do we have any business that we want to discuss with the people? You know what, man? I think just go and uh, listen to all of our back episodes. In fact, if you guys yeah. are really, you know what I would say, and I think this would be really interesting for everyone, is that this is the second election that we've been through together. Yes. This is the second one. So if you go back to our archives, you can listen to us talk about the last presidential election, Romney versus Obama. Oh, and you my can goodness. even go back and you can listen to the primaries and God damn, was it? It seemed so innocent. Like it was. A, Newt was just talking about building a space planet, <laughs> a building a building a building a, a, a hotel on the moon. Exactly. Yeah, M- Michelle Bachman oh was like God. she was the craziest person around. And you talk and you look at the well, stuff that Michelle Bachman said back yeah. then, and the stuff that we were talking about back then, and the things that we were afraid of back then. It is 
nothing well, compared to what we have now. One of the great things about it was the people who were crazy lost. And they, <laughs> this year, they're just crushing. So yeah. so it, it becomes more difficult uh, to laugh. Yeah, it really does. But I'd say go, go yeah. check out the archives, man. You yeah, know, A couple hundred episodes ago. Absolutely. And uh, go join the Facebook page. It's just uh, Abe Lincoln's Top Hat. Uh, it's full of a bunch of people having a good time. And it's as far as politics go, it doesn't dive into the total douchiness uh, that most political Facebook conversations fall into. Yeah. You know, everyone is uh, is fairly uh, kind to each other. And when they're mean, it's kind of funny. <laughs> so that's, that's good, Don't too. Don't encourage them on the meanness. No, no, no. no. If you're going to be mean, you got to be funny. Yeah. That's but- the only rule. And, you know, yeah. We got some Trump supporters, which is completely fine as a democracy. But... <laughs> You know, represent your people. Well, I got a tr- I got a couple of hate Trump tweets this week from uh, goofballs. Always on Twitter. Always on Twitter. They learn from their leader. <laughs> They're always on Twitter. And they are a bunch of little goofballs. They are. Um, all right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Oh, yeah. Marcus Parks on Twitter. Ben Kissel on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com.